Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Sasha Turner. She's the author of Contested Bodies, Pregnancy, Childrearing, and Slavery in Jamaica, published last year by University of Pennsylvania Press. This book uncovers a series of fascinating stories and details about the lives of enslaved women as they were brought into British plans to reproduce labor as the slave trade came to an end. The book explores the ways different groups vied for control over enslaved women's bodies and reproductive capacities, and gives us new ways to think about the centrality of motherhood and childhood to histories of slavery and its demise in the British Empire. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and thanks for listening. Sasha, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Alejandra. It's my pleasure to be with you. So let's just start out talking a little bit about you. How did you become a historian? Um, so I think it was more so the prompting of mentors and, you know, advisors that I had around me. I started as an undergraduate at the University of the West Indies as a history major, but of course a history major thinking that, you know, I'd pursue a career as a lawyer. Um, there were so many of us, I remember, you know, starting out thinking, you know, the pathway into law uh, would be to do a degree in history. But somewhere along the way, and I, I sort of remember very specifically, it was my second year as a history undergraduate that, you know, history sort of became more interesting to me. And one of the reasons it became more interesting to me uh, was that I was being introduced to the idea of historiography. And I remember reading um, Eric Williams's Capitalism and Slavery and Capitalism and Slavery and the discussions that we had in our undergraduate class presented a very different idea about slavery and abolitionism for me. Um, And so in thinking through and discussing with my mentors and undergraduate professors at the time, how Williams was arriving at a very different conclusion than prior historians, most of whom were British historians who had emphasized, you know, a humanitarian activism against the slave trade, I became more and more intrigued um, by this process of creating history and that they're very different interpretations around the same historical phenomena. So that really intrigued me. And then, you know, in continuing with conversations with my mentors, my professors, they really encouraged me to explore what it would mean to become a historian. And so, you know, that was really the path that I took into becoming a historian. So this isn't a book that merely looks at reproduction as part of enslaved people's lives. It really places pregnancy and child rearing at the center of the transition to the the end of of the slave trade and slavery. I'm wondering if you remember the moment when you realized how central those processes were and that that was your topic. 
Um, so not the precise moment, um, but I could sort of remember how I got onto the path. Um, and I think most of us as historians might have a sort of a difficult time pointing to a single aha moment. At least for me, there were multiple aha moments. Um, and this really started with my uncovering a letter. And this letter was written um, by an attorney or a manager of a local sugar plantation in Jamaica. And he was writing to the proprietor of that sugar estate who was living in England at the time. And in this letter, he outlined to his employer, you know, the different steps that he was taking to manage the pregnancy of the enslaved women. So, you know, in the letter, he described how he was putting these enslaved women in groups of two and three to ensure that, you know, some women would rest while others would work. And this, he said, you know, would ensure that their pregnancies were protected. And as I read through that letter, it really puzzled me and it puzzled me for a number of reasons. My understanding of the experiences of enslaved women and certainly childbearing enslaved women was that there wasn't much distinction being made about whether or not they were pregnant, whether or not, you know, they were ordinary workers. All enslaved women had the same kind of labor responsibilities and there was no kind of concession granted to pregnant women. And so here I was in the archive reading a letter that suggested something differently. And so once I started digging, you know, sort of, you know, as historians, we then sort of explore the circumstances around the creation of a letter. So what was the date of the letter? What else was going on here? Um, and so the date of the letter was August 6, um, 1807, either 1807 or 1804. I can't quite remember. But what I did was to sort of, you know, look at what's going on in the context of that letter written in either 1804 or 1807. And what I had understood was that this was a period of the abolition of the slave trade. And so I started, you know, sort of walking backward from that letter to try and understand, um, you know, what implications the abolition of the slave trade had for this particular letter where the attorney of the estate in Jamaica was describing in detail what he was doing to to protect the pregnancies of these enslaved women workers. So that letter um, in particular became one of the biggest moments that I had, or if you, you want to say perhaps an aha moment in you know sending me down this path of figuring out, well, how exactly did pregnancy change the experiences of enslaved women in Jamaica? Yes. And I want to talk a lot more about that particular um, kind of dilemma or conflict. But I also, um, I would like to hear just a little bit more about the way you framed the book as a series of conflicts among planters, abolitionists, doctors, and enslaved people themselves, right? And so each chapter is really interesting, sort of outlines a kind of conflict among a couple of sets of these uh, actors. And um, in, in some surprising way, sometimes their interests align and sometimes their interests don't align. So I wonder if you can just um, set the stage a little bit. What's going on in British slave in the British slaveholding colonies um, it, it, with a li just a little bit more detail with regards to um, abolition? But also, I don't know if you um, if you could also connect it to changing ideas about child rearing and the production of healthy workers in general in the UK and what was going on there. 
Okay. So um, the book is set between 1780, um, more precisely 1788, and it it ends in 1834. And this period between the 1780s and especially 1807 was a period of conflict. Um, and so it was very difficult for me not to engage in those conflicts. So if we look, for example, at how the process of abolition is unfolding, it was inherently an experience of conflict. So on the one hand, you have abolitionists who are lobbying against the slave trade and they're putting forth several arguments. Their arguments are based on humanitarian reasons. Um, their arguments are based on moral reasons. But on the other hand, you had, you know, the counter group and the counter group are made up of, you know, members of parliament. Um, these are the slave in interest. So you think, for example, of the London Society of West Indian Merchants and Planters, and they are at the same time presenting counter arguments the parliament, um, you know, why abolitionist arguments are wrong and why ending the slave trade would not necessarily be in the interests of the British Empire or in the interests of these um, singular colonies like Jamaica. And so at the get-go, you're seeing, you know, this conflict emerging between those two individual groups. And then as I sort of... Um, explored what these conflicts meant on the ground in Jamaica, I also saw that, you know, there were different layers of conflicts that were emerging. So on the one hand, the abolitionists had these very lofty ideas about how to get these enslaved women in Jamaica to reproduce. The planters, on the other hand, not only did they have a very different set of ideas, but the planters had um, a practical and everyday understanding of how the plantations work. We have to understand that most of those who were in London or those who were in England, the abolitionists and the proprietors who were in England, a lot of them never set foot in Jamaica. And so they don't sort of have everyday working knowledge about how the plantations work, about how labor is assigned. So that sort of automatically set them up for being in conflict with the planters who are on the ground, sort of seeing the everyday workings of the plantation. And then you have the enslaved people, on the other hand, um, and, you know, most of us who are familiar with the history of slavery also know that, you know, it wasn't simply this system of planters imposing their will on the enslaved. You know, there is this ongoing narrative of resistance. But I didn't necessarily want to set up my book in terms of planter imposition or domination and enslaved people's resistance. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, I think, Alejandra, you rightly said that, you know, there are these moments when we're seeing interests aligned. And because I wanted to capture those fleeting moments of aligning interests, I thought to set the book up in terms of a negotiation, this ongoing conflict between these varying groups, particularly when you get to the sections where I'm trying to, you know, explore and understand what's going on between the planters and enslaved women. You've mentioned um, the process of, um, or the, the, the discussions around childbearing in the wider Atlantic thinking in, in England, for example. And the discussions are quite similar. So in a way, the abolitionists were not unique in terms of trying to propose 
um, reproductive interventions as a way of ending the slave trade. There are developments going on in England, and one of the major developments in England, which spills out in the colony, is that you have the emergence of the man midwives. You have the development of gynecology and obstetrics as new field of study. And here we have a conflict taking place between midwives in England and uh, emergent doctors, emergent gynecologists. They weren't called that then because they were still developing the field. And so a lot of those um, attempts by the doctors in England attempting to gain control over the childbirth process actually spills over into the Caribbean. And the spilling over takes place um, primarily because one, doctors are going out into these spaces, not just to Jamaica, they're also going out to different parts of the British Empire. So they're going out into India as well. Um, and so the, the planters as well are inviting these doctors to come to their plantations. They're hiring them on their plantations, again, as part of an attempt to revamp the system of slavery in an effort to encourage or make reproduction more possible. And so those discussions and changes that are taking place in England around man midwives and women midwives um, are also spilling out in the colony, partly because we're seeing this shift towards reproducing the labor force locally in Jamaica. So the book, uh, in some ways, takes us on a journey via from the perspective of enslaved women's bodies, for the most part, from the beginning of um, sort of their arrival to the process of them giving birth and becoming mothers. Um, and there's evidence of, of sort of, I guess, what you might call biological engineering from the very beginning. And I found it quite hard to read a lot of these things that you were describing, especially um, the sections about um, preferences for girls who are young, but not too young, um, preferences for particular ethnicities that are understood to be more suited to motherhood. And this is a sort of thread that runs throughout the whole book is kind of the tension between treating these bodies as disposable commodities or caring for them as potential mothers. And I'm wondering how in the sources, how did this tension appear and how were you able to sort of tease out these very complicated processes by which these bodies were kind of perceived and, and, and put to work and, 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 uh, and um, used in this way. So so it, it was an incredibly difficult process. So the book was a difficult book to write, um, not only because I was trying to keep track of multi layers of conflict, but even within the conflict between enslaved women and slaveholders, there is that tension that you've mentioned between seeing or viewing the enslaved people simply as disposable commodities, but recognizing their humanity, seeing them as potential mothers and how do we care for them. And one of the ways in which I approached it, and I, I, I sometimes talk about the theoretical underpinnings um, of the work and how I sort of also came to write the writing the book the way I did, which is I've used this concept of the body as analytical framework. And the idea is sort of thinking of the body, um, both in terms of it being flesh, we think of Hortense's Spiller's um, 
conceptualization, for example. And if we sort of think in the most extreme way in which these planters conceptualized the enslaved, they thought of them simply as flesh. They thought of them simply as, you know, marketable commodity that has had the ability to produce their wealth. But that's only conceptual. In reality, they couldn't treat the enslaved this way. And part of the reason why we actually come to this point about, well, how do we get these women to reproduce? Because these enslaved women were not reproducing because of the reality of slavery. And the reality was that the women were overworked. Um, they did not necessarily have uh, nutritious and sound diets. They didn't necessarily have um, medical care or health care that would protect their bodies in a way that would, you know, short their fertility. And so what we're having is this conflict between, um, you know, how you're conceptualizing the body versus how the body can actually perform. And I didn't sort of have all the analytical tools or the analytical language at first to tease out this tension. And so what I, I had done was to sort of look at some of the literature around using the body as a center of analysis and how scholars have approached it. And one of the books that was really insightful for me was Kathy Brown's uh, Foul Bodies. And I remember there's a section in it where she talked about, um, you know, how do we see the body as this social construct, this thing that we can discourse upon, but it's also this thing that has agency of, in and of itself. And so what I was seeing or what I wanted to be able to do is to pull apart one, the kind of discourses um, being imposed on the enslaved body. So discourses thinking of the enslaved body being considered only flesh, only as marketable commodity. But on the other hand, the real life flesh and blood experiences of those who are inhabiting the body. So on the one hand, you had enslaved people who had their own conceptualization of how their bodies were to be treated, how their bodies were to be touched. But on the other hand, you had these bodies that almost had an agency in and of itself. So even when Plander said, you know, black women could produce children at will, they didn't need any respite from labor, and slave women's bodies told a very different story. And so what I wanted to be able to do was to pull apart on the one hand, social constructionist approach to the body. Um, and on the other hand, the kind of reality that the body is experiencing these things, which is not always in line with how others are describing the body. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of, of sources and sort of pulling apart these discourses, there was one um, set of conflicts that I thought really illuminated a lot of the dynamics that you're talking about. And that was the case of Bessie Chambers, who brought a lawsuit along with 24 other workers against an overseer. And I wonder if you can talk about that case a little bit. How did they come to have that power in the first place? How was it that enslaved people were bringing, able to bring a lawsuit? And how effective was that as a, as a way of, of, um, of gaining some kind of power in that relationship? Um, so thank you, Alejandra, for mentioning Bessie Chambers. Um, one of the things that I try to do in my conversation about my book is to not always talk about the planters or the names of the plantations. Um, a lot of the times when we talk about slavery, we can identify the planters, like you know, 
by second hand. Um, but when it comes to the enslaved subject, it's often, you know, just referring to them in generic terms. So I'm always happy to talk about individual cases, particularly where we can name individuals, particularly where we can identify um, an individual subject. So Bessie Chambers was an enslaved woman, and she belonged um, to one of the plantations that I study. And I came to her case um, through actually the court records as opposed to the plantation documents. And Bessie Chambers brought a case to the local magistrate, the local justice of the peace, alleging that she had miscarried. And she claimed that she lost her pregnancy because of hard work. Now, the magistrate simply threw out Bessie Chambers' case saying, you know, there's no evidence that Bessie Chambers, one, was pregnant, um, and two, there's no evidence that the hard labor that she performed had anything to do with a miscarriage if, in fact, there was a pregnancy and subsequent miscarriage. And so Bessie Chambers' case becomes this really important case because it showcases a series of changes and events that are taking place in the context of slavery. One of the first thing that it showcases is that slavery is changing. The landscape of slavery is changing. Most of us um, would you know, say from the get-go that enslaved people didn't necessarily have a voice in the court system, and that's true to a point. But what's happening here in Jamaica is that there are a series of legislation being passed. So there is a 1788 Act for the Order and government of slaves, and then there is again the Consolidated Slave Act of 1792. And what these various legislations did uh, was to implement a series of changes, both in direct response to abolitionist criticism, but also um, predicting potential criticism of abolitionists. And one of the criticism that abolitionists had is that enslaved people didn't necessarily have a platform in which to articulate um, problems that they experienced as enslaved people. And one of the, the provisions of the 1788 Act was to allow the enslaved people to report um, problems to a local justice of the peace. And this local justice of the peace would then have the authority to convene a special council of protection to investigate the claim made by the enslaved person. And so this law here um, empowered enslaved people in a way that they were not previously empowered within the judicial system in the colony. But there's a catch. Um, Bessie Chambers' case got thrown out. Um, as I said, the magistrate said, you know, there really is no proof that you were pregnant. There really is no proof that hard labor caused you to miscarry. Um, the issue here is that most of these cases, the few cases that I have been able to identify with enslaved people engaging with the legal system of the day a lot of them had their cases thrown out. And their cases were thrown out because even though you have these laws being created to supposedly protect enslaved women, to supposedly protect enslaved people, they had very little power. They had very little power because the magistrates, um, the justices of the peace were either allies of the planters, of the slaveholders, or in some cases they were slaveholders themselves, right? Um, so you, you're in effect asking the, and the slaveholders to police themselves. And so a lot of these enslaved people didn't get very far with making or bringing their claims to court. The, you know, the, the cases were essentially thrown out. 
But one of the things, so I didn't necessarily just use this case to sort of showcase how the power of the slaveholders are stacked against the enslaved person. Um, you know, the way I talk about it in the book was sort of show that the enslaved were very much aware of what was going on in England. They were very much aware that the landscape of slavery is changing. Um, at the very basic level, they understood that there were new laws put in place that protected them or at least offered some kind of a protection. Um, I look at the case and I argue that the enslaved were also familiar not just with the laws, but they were also familiar with the specific kinds of discussions that were taking place. So when Bessie says that, you know, it is because of hard labor that I miscarried, what I'm seeing here is that she understood very clearly the kinds of arguments that were being leveled against the slave trade. And she's using these arguments to claim um, protection. She's using this argument um, to protect her body and to protect her pregnancy. The other way in which I think about this case, and there are a few other cases that I talk about, is the enslaved person might not necessarily had hoped for an instant change, but I argue that by bringing their case before the magistrate, they were actually creating a record of what was going on. So if we try to unravel and figure out, well, how did these enslaved people um, know what was going on in England? How did they know what was going on in terms of new legislation? One of the suggestions I make is that the enslaved people, some of them were literate, some of them were sort of, you know, had the ability to read and understood, you know, what was being published in the local newspapers. I also talk about this kind of gossip networks among these enslaved people. So word sort of travels within these communities underground. And so if we accept and agree that the enslaved people were reading these colonial newspapers and they could see the headlines where, you know, individual cases were being used within the British Parliament to debate the slave trade, then the way in which I was seeing it is that these enslaved people were not necessarily looking immediately for reprieve, but they were creating this record um, to show from their perspective, you know, what's going on here in the colony. That's a really fascinating way of thinking about these um, documents as sort of records that were that were deliberately created by enslaved people to 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 commemorate or to sort of put in writing what was happening to them. And I guess I want to go back to um, something that you just mentioned a little while ago in terms of names, specific people. Um, and the sources, and I wonder which kind of sources you found were most amenable to finding people that you could talk about naming sources that were there sources um, that named names were there sources that allowed you to talk about individuals more easily than others. So I think the sources that, so I, I think I should perhaps um, respond first by talking generally about the kinds of sources that I use um, and then to sort of identify the sources that I think might have been um, most fruitful in helping me to identify, you know, enslaved subjects as individuals. So the 
I think the the biggest um, set of source that I use were the parliamentary records. Um, during this period between the 1780s and 1807, when the British Parliament um, finally passes the act that ends the slave trade, the House of Commons and the House of Lords creates a series of committees to investigate the slave trade. So they would call before um, parliament various individuals connected to the slave trade. So doctors, planters, merchants, slave traders were called before parliament to testify or to account for some of the charges that abolitionists were making. So the parliamentary records sort of give an account of the kinds of questions um, that the committee had had asked, um, as well as the responses from these members of the slave trade in interest. And so it's a rich set of documents that gives very good, um, but of course, admittedly biased kinds of information about the existence of slavery and about the nature of slavery. Another set of document um, that I use and I, I rely on quite heavily are um, individual plantation collections. So I, I started by sharing the case of the local attorney who was writing to his, the proprietor or his employer in England. And so you have these collection of documents that are comprised of uh, letters, uh, plantation inventories. These inventories were taken, um, keeping stock or keeping track of and say people that were purchased um, and say people who had died and say people who had been born because the planters who were on the ground needed to report on the one hand um, to their employers overseas and given them um, as complete a picture of the daily happenings on their plantation. So both the inventories, um, the letters and work diaries of these plantations were helpful. Those are the two largest groups of, of documents that I use. I also use um, to a lesser degree, part, most, but mostly because um, the writings of doctors weren't necessarily a reflection of what's going on on the ground. So these are more conceptual um, pieces of, of documents. But there were doctors uh, who wrote a variety of treatises trying to explain and trying to give instructions on how best to harness the reproductive potential of enslaved women. So of those three sets of documents, I think the ones that have been most fruitful in allowing me to put together some kind of um, biographical sketch, if you may, of these enslaved people, it would be the slave inventories. And these slave inventories um, were detailed, but not. So there were important details that were missing. The way in which the inventories were collected, it would list, for example, the name of the enslaved person, the age of the enslaved person, and a brief description of the condition of the enslaved person. Now, one of the reasons I say that the inventories were detailed but, detailed, but lacked important information, the names that were given of an enslaved person was just the first name. Of course, um, you know, in most cases, and particularly not before the 1820s when enslaved people, you know, began to, to be baptized and gain a last name, it's most of the first name of these enslaved people. For enslaved children who were born on the estate, um, a lot of the times the father's names were not listed, so it's only the name of the mother. So while there are, you know, useful details that are 
are being provided, the age and the condition of the enslaved person. Um, there are other important biographical and life details that are missing from these documents. Um, so, you know, going from the condition of the enslaved people or description of the condition of the enslaved person, I could sort of gather who was pregnant, what kind of work was this person involved in doing, what is the approximate age of this woman, um, and also... I was able to identify the number of children in some cases that individual enslaved women had been able to, who had, had given birth to. Um, so the inventories from these individual plantation connect collections, I would say would have been um, the most fruitful in allowing me to identify, um, you know, certain details about the lives of these enslaved subjects. Yeah. In some ways it's, it's, it's unsurpri- It's both surprising and unsurprising, right? Because we read so many things about slavery that don't mention enslaved women at all, that don't mention ch- pregnancy or child rearing or anything like that. But as you're saying, all of those things are are in the they're in the documents. They're right there. It just takes reading their names and figuring out who who these people were in some ways. That's right. You know. Um, so the the interesting thing um, about slavery and studying, you know, abolition and the slave trade is that they, the magnitude of documents produced about the property relationship um, or property relations of the enslaved person kind of presents this idea that there is huge amount of documentation. So if you look, for example, at the parliamentary records that I mentioned, these are volumes and volumes of records. If you look at individual plantation records, there are hundreds of pages going, you know, from in one case, the 1780s, all the way down to the 1820s, listing inventories or providing inventories of every enslaved person um, that was purchased, given inventories, um, of the death of, of various enslaved uh, individuals or those who were sold. And so there is kind of a seduction. There is this um, you know, idea that there is a lot of documentation, but there's still so much that is missing. Um, if you look at these documents, there's none that's written from the perspective of the enslaved person. There's none that really, you know, gives a first person account from the enslaved person's perspective. This is all written from the perspective of planters who claimed ownership of enslaved people. So the documents are really one-sided. And so to do the kind of project that I that I did, it really required painstaking analysis in, you know, in a way to get at what's missing from the document. So it's really pulling together fragments upon fragments to make sense of what's going on in these women's lives. Yeah. And in, in that sense, this is where your book meets a book like Marisa Fuentes' Dispossessed Lives in the sort of the the kind of aiming to find that that space where, where women are um, actually talking about their lives or somehow somehow present for, for us to, to, to access. Um, but one group that we haven't talked about yet is the enslaved caregivers who acted both as midwives and healers. And I'm curious um, if you could talk a little bit about their role and how that changed in the transition. I was really fascinated to think about um, the kind of remedies that they had and the, the ways that their knowledge worked its way into the more sort of, quote unquote, official knowledge of, of Western doctors. 
Um, so I will say that um, that discussion of enslaved caregivers, that's chapter four and five, I believe, those two are my favorite chapters. Um, and they are my favorite chapters because this is the moment when, you know, I get to sort of place the enslaved subject, the healers and the midwives at the forefront of the discussion and almost going toe to toe in terms of the conflict uh, with doctors. Um, so this is a this this period is really a period of change and transformation. Um, it is so because if you look at the period before the 1780s, planters were not as invested in childbearing. Um, of course, there is sort of the rule, partus segitur ventrum, um, offspring follows belly, which sort of, you know, creates this idea that every enslaved child or every child born to an enslaved mother automatically becomes the owner, um, sorry, the property of um, the mother's owner. And so within the theoretical framing of slavery, of course, there is an interest in childbearing. But if you sort of look on the ground of what's happening in terms of the labor that enslaved um, mothers are involved in, the kinds of care um, that enslaved uh, women are, are, are allowed to have, this is really not the planter's domain. This is the, the domain of enslaved women. So one of the um, I guess, sort of spaces that enslaved women were able to carve out for themselves in the period before the 1780s is to create a degree of autonomy around childbirth. Because again, before the 1780s, um, and 1780s referring here to the period of abolitionism, planters were not as invested in childbearing. And so enslaved women had quite a degree of autonomy to ritualize, to create rituals around healing and childbirth um, in a way that they were not able to do after the 1780s. And so part of what I describe um, in um, chapter four and chapter five in particular are the different kinds of rituals that enslaved women performed. I, I think one of my favorite is talking about the bath rituals that enslaved women performed. And this bath rituals, as far as I could um, piece together, remembering again that I'm dealing with very fragmented sources, are the ritual bath that enslaved women performed at the onset of birth. Um, and what I've been able to glean is that, you know, just as a woman realized that she was in labor, they would take her to a river or a sea or any kind of water body and perform these baths by putting mud on her skin and then washing um, washing the mud off. They would also perform um, a series of prayers as well um, or ritual chanting. And again, the idea was to enact a kind of spiritual protection over the mother, a spiritual protection over the child as they sort of go through the transition um, of bringing the child um, into the world. And I talk about those math rituals in a number of ways. One, um, part of what I had to do in piecing together the rituals is to identify sources, West African sources, and to figure out, you know, what are enslaved women or what are, I'm sorry, African women doing on the coast of West and West Central Africa around the period or around the time of childbirth. And so I piece together what's going on in Jamaica by pulling together those sources. The other part um, of talking about these rituals is to explore how planters and slaveholders were responding to those rituals. And the interesting thing is that even though 
a lot of these practices, you can identify similarities in European practices because of this period of displacing midwives in Europe that I, I talked about earlier. Planters and slaveholders and doctors are responding, um, you know, in degrading ways to these practices among enslaved women. And so, you know, they sort of chide these women as being superstitious. So one of the, the, the writers, the observers, who wrote about the ritual bath that I talk about, you know, he sort of said, you know, oh, these women were simply being superstitious to somehow think that this bath will protect them, um, you know, from any kind of danger that childbirth present. And so the planters essentially, um, you know, criticize these women and put down their practices as nothing but superstition. So one of the ways in which I write about it is that it's not just simply the Europeans who are carrying over their criticism from Europe into Jamaica, but they're also using these criticism as a way to create distinction between themselves and the enslaved. Because what's happening here in the 1780s is that whereas before Europeans viewed Bath with suspicion, in the sense that, you know, they said, you know, bathing would disrupt humoral balance. Um, if you wash the body, it would remove a layer of protection from the skin. Or if you use cold water, you'd essentially be subjecting the bodies to chill, right? And so Europeans had this, you know, very long um, and suspicious history of bathing. But by the 1780s, bathing was, you know, being used as a symbol of gentility it was sort of being used as a symbol to differentiate between the elites and the peasants. So here you have planters coming now into a space like Jamaica where, wait a minute, these enslaved women are actually bathing. They're, you know, using bath in a number of um, different social contexts. And one of those contexts is around childbirth. And so the criticism is not just sort of, you know, the, the common refrain, refrain of enslaved people being superstitious, but they're also trying to create this social and cultural distinction between whites, between Europeans and the enslaved people by saying, you know, in effect, they are being superstitious. And so, you know, in looking at those rituals, what I'm able to showcase is the way in which childbirth offered a moment of or offered a site of cultural production for enslaved people. Again, if we look at the period before the 1780s, enslaved women had relative autonomy over caring um, for childbearing women. But it's also a site of conflict, and it is a site of conflict because the practices of enslaved women are either quite similar to European practices, or in some cases, um, it's reflecting the practices of the elite. And so we see here Europeans trying to distinguish themselves um, from the enslaved people by criticizing and mocking these women um, for creating those kinds of practices. It's all quite ironic, isn't it? <laughs> um, um, so um, the, the lives of newborns, as you uh, write so delicately, were so precarious. And for me, this was quite sad reading. Um, and you make it clear also that mothers faced really difficult choices. And I'm wondering what your experience was in writing about all of this. What kinds of choices did you have to make in your writing in that in that particular chapter? So, again, that's another um, one of the difficult chapters. And I think I titled it Dead Before the Ninth Day. Um and it was a very difficult chapter to write um, for several reasons, um, one of which is just encountering, you know, death after death after death. And 
death that I encountered here was in context of, or, you know, thinking through the secondary literature was in context of some scholars sort of emphasizing this idea of gynecological resistance. And gynecological resistance in the literature sort of emphasizes abortion and infanticide as primary ways in which enslaved women resisted the reproductive um, impositions of slaveholders. And I think that's an important argument to make, um, you know, the ways in which enslaved women are using very specific practices to resist very specific impositions. But I've always found that argument um, problematic um, and somewhat limiting. I found it limiting um, because one, I don't think it's always as attentive to changes over time. Um, I don't think necessarily that, you know, thinking of enslaved women as preferring to kill their children rather than allowing them to endure slavery is taken in context of how much these enslaved women work to keep their children alive. So it was very difficult for me to simply continue in the language or continue in the argument. So whenever I had come across a, a suspicious case of infant death, I think there were two cases in particular that I spoke about where the planter suspected that, you know, it was the mothers who had killed their children. And I, I suggested um, the alternative, um, and I suggested the alternative because I was viewing this death not necessarily in terms of a struggle against slavery in an abstract sense. I was thinking of these enslaved women and having gone through uh, my discussion in chapter four and those discussions in chapter five of the various ways in which women were trying to preserve the life of their children, it seemed almost far-fetched that these women would turn around and kill their children. But one of the things I try to do with sensitivity and care is to not paint a broad um, brush of all of these women. As much as the records don't always allow us to single out and save women and forces us sometimes to generalize, I wanted to be careful not to overgeneralize. So one of the things I was trying to do in the book as a whole and in that chapter is to say there could have been several ways in which enslaved women responded. So there was one case that I pulled out. I think it was an enslaved woman named Mar whose mother um, had run away and left her behind. And so one of the ways in which I argued about you know, Mar's case is to say, well, here we have a case of a mother abandoning her child. And we can't sort of you know, say all women wanted to be mothers. Um, and we also can't say that all mothers who ran away from their children were necessarily resistant slavery in this abstract sense. So I wanted to talk about these women as individuals, women who are making individual choices as women, um, women who are making individual choices who wanted to be mothers. And I also wanted to make it clear that all, not all women wanted to be mothers. And I think I was pushing that line of argument, particularly because 
abolitionists were making these broad claims that, you know, um, all women have a maternal instinct. All women want to be mothers. And, you know, what the only thing that planters had to do was to create the material conditions that would make it so the children would survive. And I really had a problem with that argument that abolitionists made. And so I wanted to show that, you know, it was a bit more complex than that. It was a lot more varied than that, than that because you had women who were responsible then um, to motherhood in various ways. Some of them, of course, I agree with previous historians, um, you know, perhaps would have committed infanticide um, or abortion. But even in abortion itself, it could have just been women wanting to determine whether or not they would become mothers. And also it could be women who are saying, you know, I would rather my child be dead than allow it to live through slavery. So I wanted to pull together um, and tease out, you know, the varied response of say women to motherhood yeah that's a that's that that comes clear in the chapter it really comes out the 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 very different ways that you're looking at these women and and considering all sides of the kinds of choices they they've faced and the kinds of um, decisions they had to make the kinds of constraints as well um, so one of the ironies about the whole process and we mentioned this a little bit at the beginning is the extent to which planters and abolitionists, really entered the business of organizing childcare. They had all these plans for nurseries. They had to think about the lives of small children, which is almost, um, I mean, you can almost see how clumsy they are at it. That, that comes through in the way that you, you write about it. Um, and these are things that they probably had never had to think about at all, right? And so I'm wondering, um, I wonder if you thought about the the extent to which your chapter and your work contributes to a larger literature on the history of childhood and how the history of childhood was maybe shaped by um, this moment in slavery. Um, so, yes, I mean, you know, thank you for highlighting, you know, the sort of clumsiness with which the abolitionists and slaveholders went about <laughs> because they really were, um, you know, really very clumsy and they sort of had... Um, you know, these really terrible ideas about what was best for enslaved women. And I, part of the reason I said I, I enjoy chapter four is that that was one of the moments when I could really talk about enslaved women pushing back against these impositions, um, women preferred, um, who had this practice of nursing their children for up to 36 months. And you had these abolitionists and slaveholders who were making these very arbitrary cutoff dates where, you know, the women were nursing for 36 months. And here you have abolitionists who are saying, you know, weaning should be at, you know, six months or, you know, at most up to 12 months. And the women were, you know, really pushing back against that idea of, you know, this kind of imposition being placed on them to wean their children much earlier than they had in mind. Um, you know, the, the, the history of childhood um, is something that I talk about very explicitly. Um, I think it might be the final chapter. Um, and what I, I do in that chapter is to suggest that even though these slaveholders were really very clumsy in their, their ideas, and we're really prioritizing 
their economic interests and the interests of the productivity of the plantations above motherhood and above the interests of children, you do in fact see very clear definitions of childhood um, coming here, coming out here, or at the very least some kind of um, engagement and entanglement with 18th century um, ideas about childhood that is emerging and that is being discussed in the wider Atlantic world. So one of the things I talk about in the chapter is the ways in which slaveholders made these arbitrary but not so arbitrary markers about who was an infant, um, at what age, you know, um, an infant was no longer an infant, but, you know, was a boy or a girl or became a man boy <laughs> or a woman girl. Those were clumsy, <laughs> very clumsy titles, but I think very telling of how they were wrestling with, you know, looking at the physical and sexual development of, you know, young people and assessing those physical and sexual developments not against the backdrop of, you know, what's best for these children's development, but against the backdrop of whether or not they were ready for labor responsibilities. So I think one of the most intriguing um, uh, sort of the division that they created was a category of woman, girl, and man, boy. And that category, I think the name speaks for itself, where they saw young people as being in this kind of liminal position. They were not yet adults, but they were also not quite children. So, you know, physically, they were not quite ready for the most demanding labor on the plantation. But as boys and girls, um, you know, you still sort of could put them into minor labor on the field. And so I think in thinking through histories of childhood, what we're seeing here is the ways in which an economic system of production like slavery is giving rise to certain ideas about childhood and given rise to the phases of childhood and how, um, you know, a, a person sort of passed through these various phases according to assessments on physical development and according to assessment on sexual development. Um, what's also coming out in these discussions, particularly among abolitionists, is the idea of whether or not a person is born um, as a blank slate or whether or not a person, you know, is born with certain preconceived ideas. And you have abolitionists and slaveholders who are wrestling with whether or not an enslaved person sort of is born with the habits of its parents, or is this person born tabula rasa as, you know, a blank state, and then we can, you know, script and write the kind of person onto this, you know, being that we want. And so they're sort of, you know, having that debate, and it's a debate that's going on throughout the wider Atlantic about, you know, you know, what are we like as young people? Do we sort of have any kind of social conditioning or is a person conditioned as they grow and as they, you know, emerge through the different phases of childhood? Um, so I think in, in many respects, what that chapter does is to really push back against the idea, one, that slave childhood was stolen because there is a sort of this abstraction 
of childhood. Childhood um, is somewhat a social construction, and I'm careful here in saying that because <laughs> one of the things that I've seen, you know, is that the, the the body does in fact has agency, and you know, we can say a child of 12 can lift a basket, you know, weighing 20 pounds, but if the body physically cannot do that, it doesn't matter if you say the body can in fact do that. Um, but I, I think one of the things that I want to get at is that childhood isn't sort of an abstraction. Childhood, you know, is being constructed within certain social or ideas about childhood are being constructed within certain social and, and economic contexts. And in this context, um, a conception of childhood is evolving based on how planters are seeing uh, enslaved people fitting in or fitting within the future of the colonies. And the same is true for the abolitionists who are seeing young people essentially as the path to the future, right? Um, so they criticize um, planters and certain enslaved people of having certain habits. And the abolitionists, one of the reasons they're emphasizing reproduction is that they're arguing that, you know, enslaved people who are born in the colonies are at a more advantage or more advantage than those who are born in Africa because here they have access to, you know, civility, to being socialized as moral and industrious subjects. And so you see abolitionists and slaveholders playing around with different definitions of how to get, you know, children to either become industrious or moral subjects, again, fitting in or reflecting both the economic needs of the planters and the kind of moral needs and the kind of vision that abolitionists had. So I sort of emphasize that kind of constructed nature of childhood. But again, thinking through the body and the fact that it doesn't matter what we say that the body can do, there are in fact, you know, certain limits to how the body performs. And part of what slavery teaches us is that even though slaveholders are saying, you know, people of African descent have superhuman strength, whether they are children or enslaved women, the reality is that the high death rate among children, um, the low rates of reproduction among enslaved mothers actually challenges that idea that you can simply say anybody can perform any kind of labor. Um, that is simply really not true. And I think that's part of, you know, that tension that my book gets at, you know, the tension between social construction and, of course, the facticity of the body in terms of what it's able to do and what it really cannot do. Yeah, and that's really fascinating. As a and as a way to just sort of come to a, a close, it it seems to me that these debates about childhood, the debates about labor, and the debates about you know upbringing and civilization, and the 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 question of whether a person is a blank slate or not, even though uh, slavery is on the on sort of starting to end at this point, the British Empire is just getting started. That's right. <laughs> as we yeah. know, right? And so um, it seems to me that this this is a way of, of kind of switching up all of the all of the things that we know about how the, the British Empire worked and wondering if here were the seeds of some of the things that then get moved around and processed in different parts of the British Empire up into, you know, as late as the as the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, and so, you know, when I think about abolitionists, one of the things I, the part, you know, I, I sometimes say that they might have been anti-slavery, but they weren't necessarily against the British Empire. 
Um, in fact, they were very pro-empire because the way in which they frame their argument is essentially offering a much better way to make the empire work. Slavery for many um, came to be seen as this very backward, um, inefficient system. In fact, some of them argued that the British empire was spending more money to maintain this system. You know, it's a system of protected interests. Um, so you have tax incentive, for example, being granted to allow slaveholders to import slaves who are below age of 25. And so, you know, those, the reformers, I should probably use that language, the reformers who are in England, um, they're saying, you know, this is um, an example of waste. You know, if we can, in fact, produce subjects who are moral um, subjects who can adapt to British practices, then we can do away with the slave trade. We can do away with this coercive system that many in Britain find repulsive. But on the other hand, what it then becomes is an empire of culture, right? So the British here are elevating themselves. And I think this is um, Catherine Hall's um, work. Um, the British are elevating themselves. They're elevating middle-class values as a value for, you know, to which British subjects should aspire toward. And so the abolitionists are not coming out um, necessarily as anti-empire. What they're actually presenting here is a much better way in their view of how to get empire to work more efficiently um, and, you know, how to get, um, you know, these subjects to produce and to behave in a way that actually makes it better for the British empire. Yeah, I, I found that, that that's a really useful way to think about um, the book as, as a whole, but also the legacies of this book, which um, or, or the legacies of the things that you write about in the book that, that sort of seem to go on and on. But so I've taken up lots of your time and I really appreciate it. And I just want to close with one last question, which is what we often close with is, is are you working on anything new right now? Well, yes, I am. <laughs> so I actually just, um, so one, I'm on sabbatical. <laughs> from oh, Quinnipiac. lucky you. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, I, thank you. <laughs> and I just sort of finished um, a semester um, at Yale as, as a fellowship at the Gilder Lehrman Center. Um, and so in a way, this the project that I worked on while I was there and that I'm working on now while I'm on sabbatical is somewhat um, a spin-off from this book. We talked about my chapter ninth, uh, Dead Before Chapter Nine, Dead Before the Ninth Day. I'm sorry, that's chapter five, Dead Before the Ninth Day, um, which sort of talks about death and kind of the ever presence of death um, for enslaved women and for enslaved children. Um, and I've said this several times that, you know, this has been an incredibly difficult book to write. And, and part of it isn't just simply trying um, to approach my subjects with sensitivity um, and care and just sort of tease out these multiple layers of conflict. But one of the things that really came out, um, you know, throughout the course of doing this research is that despite the changes that slaveholders made, um, despite, you know, the kind of protectual rituals and healing rituals that enslaved women adopted, you know, their children, um, most of their children still did not survive into adulthood. Um, you know, most of them died, as the title, the chapter titles um, suggest, most of them died before nine days of being born. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of them, more than half of them died before they even reached the age of two. And so as I sort of went through the process of writing this book, 
it was, it was, it was a sad experience for me. It was a, you know, a very depressing experience for me. And so I sort of identified, you know, a period that I'd gone through as a grieving period. I was sort of grieving um, the loss of these enslaved uh, children, the loss that these, ex- they, these enslaved women had experienced. And so I started to do some digging around, you know, emotions and slavery, particularly um, maternal grief and trying to understand both within the primary record and, you know, historians at large, how do they deal um, with questions of emotion? And again, coming from my own emotional reaction um, to the research and particularly maternal grief. And so in digging through um, and trying to, to understand whether or not and how enslaved mothers uh, grieve the loss of their children and how enslaved community in general uh, grieve losses, I started, you know, to explore um, this question of emotions and slavery. And the fruit of it um, first was sort of this article that I, I wrote recently for Slavery, slavery and Abolition, talking about um, the maternal grief or the, the, the cultural constraints and the kind of cultural constructions around grieving practices, what we have understood so far, and some of the limitations of those grieving practices that historians have talked about. And so what I'm working on now is moving away from grief. So, you know, grief will be one of the emotions that I look at, but more generally, um, I'm sort of looking at the different, uh, at various kinds of emotions during slavery. So it's essentially the project I'm working on um, is slavery, emotions, and gender. Again, use a maternal grief as a launch point for that project. That sounds fascinating. I will look forward to seeing parts of that project as soon as it as soon as it uh, comes out. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Alejandro.